when everything's a priority, nothing is a priority. I think as leaders, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we are setting realistic priorities. Welcome to the Supermanagers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today's guest is David Robinson. He's a former commanding officer at the U.S. Marine Corps. He's trained over 200 elite aviators as a Top Gun instructor, and he has over three decades of experience leading high-performing teams. He was the colonel in charge of a multifunctional marine aircraft group with over 2,500 personnel, a $12 billion asset inventory, and he supervised and mentored nine senior executives, each with 200 reports and a $35 million annual budget. Today, David is the CEO of Vertical Performance Enterprise, and he's the author of a new book called The Substance of Leadership, a book we are very excited about and talk about during this podcast. In this episode, David explains what a leadership triad consists of and how you can implement each factor to empower your team. He also shares how to determine if you have a high-performing team and how leaders can define standards of performance. If you found this episode helpful to your leadership journey, send me a note on Twitter. My handle is at Aiden or tag us using the hashtag supermanagers. Now, without further ado, here's David Robinson on episode 69 of the Supermanagers podcast. David, welcome to the show. Aiden, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on. It's not often that we get folks from uh, from the military or from the Marine Corps on the show. So this is a treat for me. I think that you know a lot of lessons of leadership actually tend to be learned from the armed forces. And so I, I think there's a lot that we're going to go into today. You have been a commanding officer at the Marine Corps, trained over 200 elite aviators as a Top Gun instructor, and you've spent three decades uh, leading high-performing teams, and and now you have this new book called The Substance of Leadership, and you're also the founder and CEO of Vertical Performance Enterprises. Through the course of uh, your career, you were were in charge of uh, as many as 2,500 people. Uh, $12 billion of assets, uh, you know, $35 million annual budget. So you, you basically led very large groups, but let, let's go back to the beginning. So what, what were some of the early mistakes that, that you tended to make? Well, you mentioned uh, 2,500 people. I was, you know, uh, as a commanding officer toward the end of my career, um, you know, it started with two. And in the Marine Corps, you, um, you, you lead on day one. It's just, just the way it works. And so, uh, you know, you want to make sure you do it right. I uh, made a lot of early mistakes. The, the one that comes to mind that um, I try to share with other junior leaders that I think is really important is as a junior leader, uh, I tended to talk first and listen last. 
And when I talk to uh, junior leaders about things that they can do to, to become better leaders, I think it's natural for us when we're junior and, and we're just starting out in a leadership role to feel like we have to really uh, show our credibility by knowing what we're talking about. And, and that's natural. But what I found over time, you know, from going from two to then 10 and 100 and 500 and then eventually 2,500 people, that if I would listen first and speak last, a few things would happen. Number one, um, uh, people tended to share their honest opinions uh, without feeling like since I spoke first, oh, well, then, you know, obviously that's that's the answer. That's what we need to do, because the boss said, uh, you know, that's what we need to do. And uh, the other thing that it does is not only promotes innovation in that regard, but it really starts to uh, instill a sense of ownership in others. When you ask questions about how they would solve problems and how they see challenges. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, when I got up to leading so many people, um, most of the time when I would ask questions first and speak last and, and weigh in with my opinion or experience, individuals on my team came up with ideas that I never would have thought on, uh, on my own. So I always encourage junior leaders not to make the same mistake I did, you know, ask questions. It doesn't show that you are uh, necessarily ignorant about anything. It actually shows that you're interested in, uh, in, in the skills and experience of your people and that, you know, you're, you're willing to listen and factor that into your decision making. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. Is there like a, an example scenario or an illustration that we could think about where like someone might want to jump in uh, but it's much better to ask questions. And, and I guess like these questions, like what are the nature of them? Are you trying to um, get their opinion on how they would handle a situation or is it more to just uh, dive deeper to figure out what the root of the problem is? Yeah, I mean, one example would be, you know, if you're in a typical, uh, maybe a, a staff meeting, you know, if you're a, a VP, an SVP or even a, a CEO and you've got a complex problem and you need people to weigh in on, on uh, you know, how we should solve this problem as a team and what are some things to think about. Uh, too many times, uh, you know, the, the, the leader will uh, lead with their opinion. And, you know, what's common then is for others just to kind of get on board with that because they feel like that's, you know, it's already been decided. And, you know, it's natural for us to try to, um, you know, follow consensus sometimes. And it's sometimes harder to uh, go against the boss, uh, you know, when the boss has an opinion. So I've always encouraged in that situation when we're brainstorming, uh, I found it very effective as a leader. And, and I did this with my senior direct reports, just by opening up the aperture and saying, uh, okay, here's the problem statement. Uh, would love to hear your all's thoughts on um, how we, you know, could go about solving the problem. What do you think the risks are? What are the opportunities that we may not have thought about? Go around the table and then uh, I would weigh in with my thoughts and perspectives, normally in the form of a question, like, you know, have we thought about this? Uh, you know, has anyone ever seen this before? So it's less about asserting your opinion and more about trying to facilitate that and draw it out of your team. And then, of course, at some point, Aiden, we all have to make a decision. And then it's, I think, incumbent upon the leader to make that decision in a timely fashion. And then explain the why behind that decision was made and thank the individuals around that table for weighing in with their opinions so that next time they'll be encouraged to do the same. Yeah, I think that that sums together nicely all of the all of the different ways. One is obviously let everybody else uh, speak first. And then when you are giving your opinions, forming those as questions rather than assertions, I think that's obviously clever and and I like the way that you you summarize dis, uh, the decisions and, and thank everybody. I think like that is a it's almost like a nice playbook of how to do it. 
Uh, so I think everybody will appreciate that. One thing that I wanted to chat with you about is this concept of a leadership triad. You have uh, spent a lot of time with high-performing teams, uh, and, and you talk about this in, in, in your book as well. So why don't we start with talking about what what is a leadership triad? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, maybe I'll provide a little context on how I landed on the leadership triad. Um, Ten years ago, when I was transitioning from the military to the private sector, a friend of mine uh, in a Fortune 100 company asked if I could come out to the West Coast in the U.S. and speak to a a large group of executives on how to lead uh, a high-performing team in a high-pressure environment. And uh, my time slot was an hour. So, you know, he requested 45 minutes of talking and then, you know, 15 minutes of Q&A. Aiden, it was one of the hardest things I'd ever done because I kind of felt like I knew how to lead a high-performing team, but to try to synthesize that into 45 minutes uh, into some type of a mental framework that people could get their head around, uh, understand it from a number of broad industries was quite a challenge. But it was one of the most rewarding things that I ever did because it really forced me to uh, really get crystal clear on what I think matters most about leading a high-performing team. In other words, we all have limited time and energy. Where do you focus your effort? And where I landed after you know thinking back over three decades of leadership from a follower's perspective and then a leader's perspective uh, was, was three focus areas, culture, people, and mission. And so that's the leadership triad. And uh, you know I unpack this in the book. It's really a simple framework that I've come up with that I think distills in some ways the complexity of leadership into those three essential focus areas. And I'd love to dig in a bit more. I mean, in particular, for example, mission might be a little bit more self-explanatory, but when you have, but you also have culture and people as as separate items there. Uh, How would you define them to be separate? Yeah, well, I think, you know, culture uh, is, you know, some people say of your triad, is there any area that's more important than the others? And in the book, I have a whole chapter on how important it is to balance these three and and to to keep them in balance. There are some tensions uh, between those, but I think a high-performing team really starts, the foundation uh, is your culture. And I I think, you know, in in many ways, that's the the set of, of shared values and attitudes that your team has that really characterizes, you know, the essence of your team. I see it as the lens from uh, through which your people see your mission. Uh, you know, those other two areas of the triad. For me, the center of gravity of a high-performing culture is trust. And so the next question from people is normally, well, how do you develop uh, a culture of trust? And my experience, it comes down to what I call the three C's. Uh, the first is uh, leading with character. And on a day-to-day basis for leaders, I think we can simplify that. That just means that we are committed to doing the right thing. Uh, The second C is competence. That means we know our stuff. And on a day-to-day basis, we're committed to doing things right. And then the third C for me is all about composure. And that's where our real character shines under adversity. And it's maintaining, you know, setting setting the right tone and maintaining a positive positive tone in in the midst of challenges. So, uh, you know, when you lead with those three C's, I have found that that really generates a culture of trust on your team where, I found that people will will do anything for each other to keep from letting their teammates down. Can we talk about an an example of uh, maybe what you know, story of when you demonstrated one of these and and you thought it was a very self reinforcing, um, I guess, trust factor uh, for your team. I'll talk about the uh, the third C, composure. Uh, you know, that's something that I think. Um, 
a lot of leaders struggle with. You know, I, I feel like we've probably all worked for or known a leader that shot the messenger uh, when, when, when bad news came to them, right? It only takes two or three times before people stop bringing any news whatsoever because they just don't have that emotional composure and, and many times they overreact to adversity. I think under pressure, um, uh, you know, that lack of composure uh, and, and sometimes even panic under pressure can spread like wildfire throughout an organization. I'll, I'll give you a personal example where I, I really learned this uh, in many ways the hard way. Uh, in 2006, I was serving in Iraq as the director of air operations in the Western sector of Iraq, an area about twice the size of my home state of South Carolina. I uh, was responsible for air support and medical evacuations for about 30,000 Marines and soldiers uh, on the ground and about 200 aircraft. And one afternoon, um, we noticed on the video feed in the command center that uh, there from the drone overhead, the, the, the base we were operating out of, there was a large mob forming at the front gate. And then in the distance, a couple miles away, two white sedans uh, speeding toward that front gate at a very high rate of speed on, on, on dusty roads. Almost immediately, uh, we started taking mortar fire on the north end of the, of the sector there in our base where the helicopters were parked. And then uh, if, as if things couldn't have gotten worse, six simultaneous firefights erupted and we started to experience a number of mass casualties. And I'll be honest, you know, I started as the one, the person responsible for responding to all of these contingencies at the same time with air support. I started to sense the urge to panic. I'll be honest with you, just, you know, physically and emotionally. And then I had a flashback to about three years earlier. I was sitting in a classroom listening to a combat leadership lecture by a retired Lieutenant General in the Army. His name was uh, Hal Moore. And he wrote a book called We Were Soldiers Once and Young, it was made into a movie in which Mel Gibson played Hal Moore. So your audience should check out the book or the movie. It's, it's a really fantastic uh, uh, you know, story. Uh, the one thing I remember that day, he, and he said, if you remember nothing else, if you find yourself in a combat leadership situation, uh, it's inevitable when the pressure's on and lives are on the line, you will physically and emotionally feel the urge to panic. And when that happens, take a deep breath, speak calmly and clearly, because if you don't, it will only get worse. And so I took that advice on board and I, you know, get, huddled up my uh, air directors and I, I told them two things, Aiden. I said, look, things are bad right now. We don't have enough resources to respond to all the incoming requests for medical evacuations. What I need you to do is think outside the box, be innovative, keep me informed on what you're doing uh, so I can have your back. Um, and so you can, you can trust me to, to back you up. And then second of all, I need you to take a deep breath before you start you know, directing air traffic on the radio so that they don't sense that we're panicking because it'll spread like wildfire. Some very, very innovative things happened. And uh, we didn't save everyone that afternoon, but, but we did make the most of a bad situation. I felt like my team was able to trust me emotionally and, and they trusted that I had their back. I trusted them and empowered them to come up with some very creative solutions that I wouldn't have thought of on my own. And it all went back to, you know, Hal Moore's, uh, you know, recommendation and advice about under pressure, you know, composure is really important because it instills emotional trust in your team. And when your team begins to develop that emotional trust, then that really enhances other forms of trust as well. Yeah, that, that, that's such an excellent uh, example. I, I mean, kudos to you for being able to do that in, in such a high pressure situation. Uh, it is quite challenging to do that even in you know, situations where no one's life is on the line. So uh, that, is, uh, that is definitely a, a skill that 
is uh, very useful to develop. One question that I had, which is um, along the lines of culture, you kind of talked about your team's culture as well. Uh, you know, the the Marines Marines have cultural values that are for all Marines, and and they're things that define what a Marine is. Um, ha- is there also subcultures uh, that exist within different teams uh, that you've led, and, and how does that work? Yeah, well, you know, going back to your, your point, I mean, the, the Marine Corps' values, U.S. Marine Corps values are honor, courage, and commitment. And, um, you know, those are the three overarching values that define the, the ethos or the culture of, uh, of every Marine Corps organization. Um, but I think there are subcultures, and I actually encourage leaders who are leading teams within a larger organization to, uh, you know, determine what they believe are their most important values for their individual team, because uh, organiz- uh, teams within a larger organization, Aiden, as you well know, uh, sometimes have a different slice of the mission than another uh, team within that organization. And I always encourage them to personalize their culture, but to make sure that that culture is aligned with the overarching culture of the larger organization and, uh, and, it's, and it's in support of those larger organizational values. But I think it's really important for leaders to be authentic with their own values and how they want to create the, their, their own culture on their team, as long as it's not in any way uh, in opposition or um, you know, contrary to the overarching culture of the of the larger organization. Yeah, and I think you bring you brought up a really good point, which is that different teams can can have different, slightly different missions because each team will have or each organization will have a different objective, and and so it's not crazy to see that they will have different subcultures, like like you mentioned, because they're going to have different ways of doing things, uh, different norms, and so. Uh, a lot of that starts to to make sense, and and, and it is important for for a leader to be able to identify that. Um, and as long as again you're not violating sort of like the overarching uh, values, uh, then then I think that's a worthwhile action uh, for managers to take. One thing that is uh, is an interesting question. We talk about high performing teams, and a lot of your writing and a lot of the work you do has been. Uh, around this topic. But one question that I have is, how do you know if you have a high performing team? So for example, if a, you know, manager is trying to evaluate and say, well, high performing teams sound great. How do I know if I have one? And, uh, and if I don't, then, then I'll work on creating one. Well, that's a great question. I, I have to put in a little plug uh, on my website, verticalperformance.us. I actually developed a five minute survey. It's 15 questions where leaders can actually um, invest five minutes and it'll provide some feedback on, are you, cons- you know, uh, leading a team that can perform consistently at a high level? And Aiden, it's tied to uh, those three elements, uh, dimensions of the leadership triad that I just mentioned. It all comes down to, do you have a culture of trust? And there, there are some ways to determine, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, your people trust you and, and whether or not they trust each other. Uh, you know, do your people feel like they're respected, that they are valued as an important member of the team, or do they feel disrespected and disenfranchised and in some ways micromanaged? Uh, that would be a key indicator of a high performing team. And then on the mission side, I think it comes down to, you know, does your team feel empowered and do they feel like that they are part of something larger than themselves? And do they, do they uh, can they articulate and grasp the overarching vision and do they understand how their individual role contributes to that overarching vision. When you put these three elements together in harmony, 
then that's that's the, the clearest way that I've found to determine whether or not your team is high performing. Many times we get wrapped around metrics. That's fine as long as the metrics are an accurate representation of what we're really trying to achieve. Uh, and that's great. And we do need to measure that. But in many ways, it comes down to is your team really reaching its full potential in terms of how good it, it can actually be in the mission that you need to accomplish? Yeah, I think I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, now I want to go take that quiz. Uh, I didn't know about it on your website. I will definitely check it out. One thing that is maybe a uh, is an interesting question to ask is one of the mistakes that like we often talk about, uh, or you know, previous guests have talked about is you know leaders not doing the appropriate storytelling. Or just talking about the mission, and you you just mentioned mission and how it's really important for a team to say they understand the mission and it's it's almost greater than themselves. Uh, for some of the things that happen, you know, I, I would imagine maybe maybe that's obvious, but I I wanted to ask how often do you as uh, leaders, let's say in the the Marine Corps, do you like repeat what the mission is or do storytelling around that and and why it's important? Is is that like a uh, is that still a, an activity that, that you do very often? Uh, absolutely, Aiden. Uh, you know, I, uh, in, in the book, I talk about um, the question is, how do you connect your people to your mission? And I, I go into uh, a discussion about uh, really revolves around inspiring and empowering your team. And, you know, step one of inspiring your team is really to help them to get bought into the leader. But step two is to help them get bought into the mission. So how do you get them to buy into the mission so that they're emotionally invested in mission success? Uh, you know, to me, it comes down to, um, uh, well, uh, Patty Sanchez and Nancy uh, uh, Duarte wrote a book called Illuminate. And, and I really learned a lot from, from their book uh, about four techniques for illuminating your mission or your vision so that people can really get emotionally in, invested in it. And it revolves around, uh, you know, speeches where, you know, it's not a long speech, but it's an it's it's an anecdotal uh, way to, uh, you know, really take some time to articulate the mission and really focus on why it's important. If you can just get to the why, people can really start to embrace their the, the purpose behind it. Uh, storytelling is so important for making that em emotional connection with people. Uh, as a squadron commander, I used to love to tell stories about the students that we trained that were out on the pointy end of the spear, so to speak, in combat, flying off of aircraft carriers to tell my unit, uh, you know, how successful they had been at training them because they were successful and, th and that was uh, uh, very effective. Uh, also, the, the third element is this idea around um, uh, ceremonies where we get to celebrate people and, and recognize them in front of their peers, which is so, so powerful. And then this idea of, 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 of articulating or illuminating the mission is so important. I found, uh, Aiden, that my people were really starting to understand the mission when I started to feel like I was sounding like a broken record. Uh, and it just took that much repetition because there's turnover. And then I would ask people what the mission is and when they could play it back. Uh, and I felt like they really understood it and felt that conviction. Uh, then I knew that the message was getting through, but it takes time to get there. Yeah. And it's interesting that you had to feel like you were um, a bro like a broken record player, like you said, in uh, for you to know that it was uh, you were there. Because I guess the re reason I think this is an important question is that uh, you can't take for granted that, you know, just because someone is a Marine that they, and they were almost like pre-selected, you know, not everybody becomes a Marine. And so like, just because they have uh, taken that oath, it doesn't mean that they necessarily 
um, there's many different missions uh, at various times, and and just like repeating that makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, but you also ask them like, how does it work when you ask them what do you think the mission is, or like what form does that take? Yeah, I've always uh, you know believed, and I've learned the hard way that um, a message communicated is not always a message received, right? So I would I would just um, be completely vulnerable and humble, Aiden, and I would say. At the end of a you know a, a session or a talk or you know if I was trying to explain the mission, I would simply say uh, I'm not always the best communicator. I would love for you to try to, to play back for me what what you th- think I said, and then if they played it back, great. Uh, if they didn't, then I had a chance to refine that a little bit and say, well, I probably didn't explain that very well. Here's what I really meant by that. So I put it on me. The, the onus was on me as the leader to make sure that my team understood what I was trying to communicate. Yeah, I, I think that's super valuable. I've definitely done the, uh, can you tell me what you heard? I just want to make sure we're on the same page. But the way that you put it is so much more eloquent. I'm not the best communicator always. Uh, and I love uh, framing it in that way. I think that's such a super valuable tactical uh, tool there. Hey there, just a quick note before we move on to the next part. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing one-on-one meetings. But here's the thing. We all know that one-on-one meetings are the most powerful, but at the same time, the most misunderstood concept and practice in management. That's why we've spent over a year compiling the best information, the best expert advice into this beautifully designed 90 plus page ebook. Now don't worry, it's not single spaced font, you know, lots of text. There's a lot of pictures. It's nice, easily consumable information. We spent so much time building it. And the great news is that it's completely free. So head on over to fellow.app slash blog to download the definitive guide on one-on-ones. It's there for you. We hope you enjoy it and let us know what you think. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. We have a quote from you where you say, uh, a leader's guidance is simply defining what your team needs to accomplish and why and leaving the how up to them. So I think the the highlighting of the, the mission, like like you said, that's a lot of the the what and the why. But I guess it comes down to leaving the how to them. Uh, if you're leaving the how to them, how does the how do you also make sure that um, you're able to impart on them just lessons and you know things that that you've learned so that you know, maybe they can take advantage of a lot of those things. Yeah, this is a really fine line. <clears throat> I mean, um, I, one of the things when I uh, work with leaders and, and do leadership development uh, in, in the corporate world, um, one of the hardest things to to really get across, and, and that is when we try to explain how to our people, uh, it's very disempowering. Uh, and it, it can come across as micromanaging. And research continues to show that micromanagement is one of the main top three reasons consistently over the last decade why people leave teams. And if they don't leave, it's one of the main reasons why uh, you know there's low morale on that team. So micromanagement is a real a real risk because it's hard for people to get emotionally invested in something where they don't really feel like they have some control and 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 some ability to shape the outcome. And so for me, uh, you know, when I try to define the what. Um, I will then ask uh, the person that I'm delegating to, for example, uh, and this is what I recommend to leaders, is to ask them to come back in a, an acceptable amount of time with, with their recommendation on how to accomplish that. 
And I recommend that um, you offer them the opportunity to uh, leverage your experience and expertise. And the way that I frame that, if, if I said, Aiden, um, you know, uh, thank you for, uh, you know, being willing to, to take this on. Uh, this is really important for our organization. Uh, would love for you to come back, uh, you know, in a couple of days, let's talk about how you think we should solve this problem. I don't want to, uh, you know, tell you how I would do it because I want to hear your thoughts. Um, but if you are interested in learning some lessons that I may have learned the hard way uh, in this area, or you want to leverage my expertise, uh, I'd be happy to share that. I've never had one anyone turn me down. Uh, but, but at the same time, you know, I frame that as, okay, you may want to think about this. You might want to think about this. I made this mistake four or five times, would never do that again. It's always in the form of um, lessons that I've learned. And I might phrase uh, recommendations as questions or things to think about or things to consider. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, that's such great tactical advice. I, I think that is uh, super useful. And uh, I love that you have definitely tried saying that uh, if you're, if you'd like to hear some of the things that I've learned, uh, I'm, I'm here to, to help. And uh, it's, it's also wonderful to know that nobody's ever turned you down on that. So I, I think that uh, we can count as a good way to go about it. One thing I wanted to also talk to you about is you have this uh, framework that you call the three P's uh, of the mission. So prioritization, preparation, and passion. What are each of those, if you could just maybe like in a, in a sentence or two describe, um, describe those? Because I think it'll help uh, for people that want to go about illuminating a mission. Like you said, I think it might help them. Uh, kind of get their their minds wrapped around that. Well, um, you know, when people say, hey, what does it take to really uh, generate mission focus and to get your team laser focused on the mission? These are the three areas that I think are most important, Aiden. Um, prioritization. Look, I mean, we live in a world where the, the velocity and volume of information flow is just, you know, in, increasing exponentially every year. And pretty soon it's, it's information saturation and it feels like everything is a priority. But as, as the saying goes, when everything's a priority, nothing is a priority. I think as leaders, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we are setting realistic priorities, not 50, because nobody can manage 50 priorities, but you know, maybe uh, you know, one to five priorities so that your team can really uh, keep the main thing, the main thing, uh, if you will. So I think that's the foundation for mission success so that we are properly focusing our, our, our resources, our time and our energy on, on what matters most. That second P is around um, preparation. And, uh, you know, qu quick story, when I was in college, I, I had a, I don't know how many sports fans you have in your audience, but I was a big basketball fan growing up. One of my all-time heroes was John Wooden, uh, who was the, the coach of the century, uh, according to ESPN in the 20th century, uh, led the UCLA Bruins to 10 NCAA basketball championships in 12 years in the 1960s and 70s. Unprecedented. Uh, I'm not sure that record will ever even be, be close to touched. I went to one of his basketball clinics just to observe. And um, uh, afterwards, I uh, introduced myself and, and he invited me into his office. Couldn't believe it for an hour. He was in the US Navy and wanted to talk about some of his experiences. And, you know, being the, uh, the, the impressionable junior leader that I was, I, I asked him, I said, Coach Wooden, you know, you have been so successful as a leader. Um, your team's uh, players have had such great character. What is, what is your secret? If there's anything, what would you point to? Without hesitation, he, he said, preparation. Uh, that's what it's all about, preparation. And I took that on board, Aiden, and, and applied that to everything that I uh, 
than I did in my military career and now in my uh, in my corporate career. The question I think that we need to really ask ourselves as leaders is what are we doing today to prepare our team for tomorrow's opportunity? And that's what I think really forms success uh, as far as our mission is concerned. It's founded on prioritization, but I think our mission success is formed through constant uh, preparation. And then the final P is passion, specifically passion for excellence, which I think fuels mission success. And, and when I say passion for excellence, what I really mean there is being dedicated to continuous improvement. And it starts with a leader to the extent that you're willing to admit that you don't know everything, that you have a growth area and that you are striving to get better tomorrow than you are today. That tends to uh, you know cascade down throughout your entire team. That's super interesting. And I, I now want to dig in. So my questions are like talking about preparation. I, I get it. Prioritization. I agree with you. You need to one to five. They need to be clearly defined. Otherwise, people are going in all sorts of directions. So let's talk about preparation. Like, what does that tactically mean? Um, you know, for say that you have a, you know, just any any sort of company that you're working at, say that you have a, a revenue goal. Um, how do you how does preparation work um, in that case? Well, let's take the example. I'm just thinking out loud with you here, and we can problem solve together. I mean, if you have a if you have a revenue goal, um, you know, I think it'd be um, important first of all to um, look at what are the various components that would enable you to meet that that revenue goal, right? I mean, so uh, you know, there's a sales and marketing component to that. There's going to be an operational component to that. There's probably a strategic communications component to that. You name it. I'm just you can fill in fill in the blanks. But let's say that you break that down into what I'd call you know, maybe three to five, um, you know, high value areas of, of, of concentration. And then the next question is, um, you know, for those uh, individuals who are responsible for carrying out those lines of effort that are leading toward that goal or that mission, that priority of, of, of a revenue goal, um, what are the skills and, and, and areas of expertise that they need to have in order to be successful? And so are there training opportunities? Are there mentoring opportunities? Are there apprenticeship opportunities? Are there research opportunities? Uh, uh, are, there, are there other opportunities today to make sure that we are putting in ourselves in a position to capitalize uh, on opportunities that we may or may not be aware of? There might be, a, uh, when I say research, uh, you know, kind of a market intelligence uh, component to that as well. And so I think it's all about reverse engineering. Where are we trying to go? Figuring out what are the avenues that we need to be really good at in order to get there? And then how do we get good, so to speak, at those areas that we need to get good at and start preparing now for tomorrow's opportunity? Tying that back to Coach Wooden, uh, you know, one of the things that he mentioned was that he didn't enjoy the games as much as the practices. You know, his passion was all about preparing his team to perform when uh, when the game started and and his his ultimate goal was to not have to coach at all during a game. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh that's super interesting. And uh that's amazing that you actually got to ask him that question and met him in person. That that's amazing. What about passion though? So passion is an interesting one and I like the way that you defined it because you said, well, you've got to, it comes from the leader and there has to be like this desire to continuously get better at something. Um, would you say that like, the question is, how do you get people on your team and everybody on your team to be passionate about what you're pursuing? I guess like part of this is, uh, you know, is everyone, I think everyone can be passionate about something, 
you know, the, the trick is like, how do you get them to be passionate about the mission? Um, is, is there anything that you've learned or any, uh, any interesting, um, strategies that you've used to turn people that may have started as, as being not passionate into passionate, uh, about the, the mission or whatever is being tackled? I love, uh, love to, I'm passionate about talking about passion. That's, that's <laughs> sure. I love talking about it. I think two things uh, in my experience, Aiden, I'd love to share with you and get your thoughts. Um, the, first, the first is around the standards that you set. And, and when I talk about setting standards of excellence, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think about, first of all, uh, define the standards so that people can really understand, you know, what the standards are and, and what we're trying to achieve. Uh, the second thing is to explain why that standard is important. Uh, I can't emphasize this enough. I found that if people understand the why, the purpose behind a standard and, and how it's going to help the team achieve excellence, then uh, they very quickly start to embrace uh, a passion for that standard of excellence. Uh, but the third piece is probably the hardest, and that is the leader uh, needs to hold themselves to an equal or higher standard. So when you clearly define the standard, explain the why it's important behind it, and then as a leader, hold yourself, set the example by, by holding yourself to an equal or higher standard, that's step number one. Step number two is all about being committed to self-improvement. And I find that this starts with a leader. Um, you know, at Top Gun, uh, we, we, we had a debriefs after every flight. I've flown 3,000 flights in my career, and after every flight, we debrief for at least an hour. At Top Gun, our debriefs were six hours long. Now, wow. I'm not recommending that any of your listeners spend six hours debriefing everything that they do, but I am recommending after, you know, every time you invest significant time or effort into, into something, huddle your team up and ask three simple questions. Uh, what happened relative to what we were trying to achieve? Number two, why did it happen? Let's do some root cause analysis. Did we achieve our goal or not? And if not, why? And then third, how can we, not Dave Robinson, not Aiden, you know, not Sue, not John, take the who out of it. How can we as a team collectively improve the next time that we do the same thing? And if the leader starts that debrief by admitting or explaining what they could have done better as the leader of the team, I found that it really opens up the, uh, uh, the, 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 the faucet, so to speak, for other people to pipe in and say, oh, you know what, I, I could have done this better. And now it's all about learning and team improvement. So you start with setting the standard, and then you talk about a passion for improvement. You put those together. Uh, I found that that's the formula for generating that passion for excellence in your team. That is uh, that is super super helpful. I think the uh, there's a couple of points there that I wanna I wanna break down. So one was around the the set setting of the standard. Um, you, you kind of implied that, you know, standards are contagious, and I, I do agree. Um, my question is, how do you define a standard of excellence? Like, how do you go about uh, defining what the standard is? It, I, I would imagine that some of this happens maybe in debrief sessions where uh, you have an opportunity for feedback on on whatever, like, uh, you know, the flight or whatever else uh, just occurred. Um, what, what is the modality that you use to, to define the standard? I, I use what I, I recommend leaders have what I call a leader's intent. And uh, this is a way to, uh, you know, in many ways, connect your culture to your mission. And I encourage leaders to think about the five things. First of all, uh, you know, what is your what is your mission? Can you articulate that? Um, what is your vision? What is what is good? What does success look like? 
What are your values? That's that's the heart of your culture. Um, what are your goals and priorities? We just talked about that. And then this fifth bucket, Aiden, is, is what I think you're talking about. That is what are, what are our expectations? What are our behavioral expectations? What, are, what can you expect from me as a leader? What do I expect from my, my team members as, as members of the team in terms of expectations? Many times those are um, performance expectations. Sometimes you can put very quantifiable uh, you know, metrics around those. Other times they're a little bit more subjective. And I know that uh, you know you love um, you know one-on-one -on -one feedback and the way managers can you know you know develop those opportunities to help your team grow. This is an opportunity to enforce those standards. But um, you know they, they need to be measurable. Uh, they need to be clear. They need to be understood. And then once you set those standards, then we try to achieve them. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you that I'm an advocate that as leaders we ought to be setting standards of perfection. Uh, for example, in aviation, uh, my safety standard was we will have zero aviation accidents, right? I mean, I couldn't say, oh, we will accept one aviation accident this year, right? I mean, you just can't, you can't do that. Um, we did have some accidents, though, and I realized that perfection is not possible when you are leading human beings. And so the question is, how do you reconcile that delta between a very high standard, a stretch goal, and a, and a standard of excellence, because there's some delta in there? I think the debrief is how you do that. And it's about why did we not achieve that, that, that high standard? And what can we do to close that gap and get clo closer to that very, very high standard that we're aspiring to? Yeah, no, I think that's super helpful. And, and just what you were saying, which is to start as a leader by first saying what you could have done better. I think that that is that is such a great way to, to start it. Now, I have to ask you, six hours, what, do you, what, were you, what were you all talking about for six hours? You know, whenever we flew a flight, uh, average flight was about an hour to an hour and a half, depending on the type of mission, anywhere from two to 50 aircraft airborne at any given time. Um, and, you know, we had very specific mission objectives and very specific training objectives. And this kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions. Those training objectives were skills that we needed to be able to perfect and improve upon in order to accomplish the mission. And everyone that was in that flight had sometimes a different role and responsibility. And so, uh, you know, Dave Robinson had a certain uh, responsibility within that flight for certain tasks that we needed to perform. And of course, these decisions are being made at, you know, the speed of sound, sometimes twice the speed of sound with, you know, things happening in three dimensions and, you know, very, very quickly. And um, we have um, uh, recordings of our radar scope. We have recordings of aircraft positioning. We have recordings of the target. You can record everything. It's like everything you did of every second in that flight is recorded. And we would literally go through those recordings, you know, person by person to pick out, uh, you know, what you could have done better at this particular point in time to achieve the training objectives in order to make sure that we accomplish the mission. I never flew a flight where there was something that I couldn't improve upon. And, and uh, it was always powerful as a leader to uh, be the first to note, I didn't do that uh, that radar search very well. I could have done this better by doing A, B, and C in order to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And then everyone else was like, oh, well, if the flight lead can say that, then certainly there are many things that I could admit that I could have done better also. Yeah, no, that that's amazing. Like as you were you were talking about what you were doing and all the all the things that could have been recorded and all the different variations. I understood much more deeply preparation as as one of the the, the P's of um, the three P's of uh, of the mission. Relatedly, I think the you know as as we're talking about the the mission and and, and trying to achieve it, 
you also talk a lot about adaptability and decentralized decision making. I think the idea of decentralized decision making sounds sounds very appealing and and almost romantic in some ways. My question is, how do you make sure that it doesn't just lead to chaos where everybody just does everything? Like in practice, what what does it look like? Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, you know it, it, it does sound romantic, and it you know it's a little ambiguous, and there's kind of kind of squishy. What does it really mean? I'm, I'm glad you asked. I mean, I really think it comes down to empowerment, right? I mean, in reality, we live in a very fast-paced world, and decision making, if it's uh, if it's concentrated at the highest levels of an organization. That can be a that can be a constraint for speed and agility for any organization. So uh, it's incumbent upon leaders, I think, to push that decision authority down to the lowest practical level within the organization. And practically, this is what I think it looks like. I think it starts with that leader's intent that I just mentioned earlier, right? If a leader can clearly articulate the what at a very high level, cast that vision, and then empower leaders at lower levels to make decisions. One way to do that is to start to clarify, uh, Aiden, what I call decision thresholds, right? So if I'm working for you, you and I might have a conversation about what kinds of decisions Dave Robinson is authorized to make uh, categorically and what types of decisions you want me to make sure I share uh, with you to get your input before that decision is made. Uh, You might also uh, tell me some things that... um, you want to be made aware of if they meet certain thresholds, uh, you know, um, uh, so that I can I can provide a feedback loop there. But one way to, to, to make sure that this is a learning process without turning it into total chaos is to use uh, weekly one-on-ones and feedback sessions for junior decision makers to share with their boss the decisions that they are planning on making and to get that feedback like, hey, boss, uh, Aiden, here's here's the decision I need to make, you gave me the authority to make it. Unless directed otherwise, this is where I'm where I'm leaning. Have you seen this movie before? Is there any experience that might uh, you know I might not be thinking about? You have a chance to weigh in, but I still feel like I own that decision, and you have a chance to train me and train my judgment, and that generates trust in that decision making relationship as well. And then I can also debrief you on decisions that I made this week, and we can talk about how those panned out. And so. I found that to be a very effective way of delegating decisions, but not completely letting go of the wheel, so to speak, and staying in that kind of supervisory role as a mentor. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense and, and, and it's a good way to put it. And uh, I agree. And for those, I guess, that were wondering, uh, one-on-ones do happen in the Marines as well. So that, that that's good to hear. So, uh, David, this has been super, super helpful. I mean, so many different things that we covered. And uh, one of the one of the things we like to, to leave all of our guests with is just uh, for all the managers and leaders out there who are constantly looking to get better at their craft, what words of wisdom, tips, or advice would you leave them with? What I will say, like before you answer that question, though, is the substance of leadership. Um, I'm so excited to read the book myself. Uh, by the time this interview is is live, um, everybody should be able to get it. Um, and I assume it's on, it, they'll be able to find it on Amazon and all the typical bookstores. Um, and so, so very excited for that. But uh, besides reading the book, uh, what else would you leave um, everybody with? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a great question and a tough question because this is kind of that, you know, if you remember nothing else, uh, you know, moments, right? But I, I would just uh, leave your, your audience and your team and your, your listeners with um, uh, the, the following. And I call this the leadership paradox, right? I mean, the more you let go and give to your team, uh, 
I found that the more you will get as a leader in terms of high performance. And so it's so hard sometimes to empower, to give away control, uh, you know, to give away decision-making authority because we all naturally want to concentrate that. But I found that the more you give away and the more uh, that you're willing to let go, the more you'll get in terms of performance. And so the two, uh, you know, recommendations or tips that I would leave uh, is number one, focus on empowering your team. Define the what, leave the how up to your people ask them how they would do it. And then, you know, have a conversation when they come back and explain the how, and then ask questions. Have you thought about X, Y, and Z that might help fill in some of the gaps? And the second piece is to take care of your people by putting their interests ahead of your own. What, what I found is when we take care of our people and put their interests ahead of our interests, ahead of our agenda, they will do whatever it takes to take care of you as the leader in order to accomplish your team's mission. So that would be uh, my, my, my final comments, the leadership paradox, empower your team and take care of your people. And uh, that's great advice and, and a great place to end it. David, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Aiden. It was my honor and a great privilege. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app slash supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please, tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.